Hi, my name is Kevin McDonald, and I'm declaring my independence. Independence from what? Why, negative thoughts and energy, of course. Chief among them, hate, division, and fear. You see, I know that we're all one, and together we can solve any problem, save our planet and each other. Please, join me as we come together as one and choose a better way to be. So now, let's begin with my independence report. Welcome, everybody, to My Independence Report. My name is Kevin McDonald, and today we are really fortunate. We've got something. By the way, I want you to grab a piece of paper and a pencil because you're going to need that during this episode because uh, we have a retired colonel from the United States Air Force, where my son is, is and she has uh, been in uh, public service her entire life, and she's also an author. And she's written a book about uh, about how to influence people and, and how to write them more effectively. And we're going to get into that. She's also got some free ebooks. Did I say free? I did. I said free ebooks, and we're going to talk about that as well. So, Colonel Carla D. Bass is our guest for the hour. And Carla, how are you today? Kevin, I'm delighted to be joining you. I'm doing fabulously, and I thank you. Oh, you're more than welcome because we've got a lot to talk about, uh, you and I, because you, you've you taken it upon your life work after, because you spent 30 years in um, in the Air Force and you were in the uh, security end of things, correct? Uh, yeah, I was in intelligence for 30 years. Yes. That's what I was trying to say. Yep. And you weren't a security guard, you were an intelligence officer for, for that time. And then you left there. And you did the same, you're doing the same thing now for the U.S. government, yes? Correct. Yep. That's 45 years worth of defending our country. So when are you going to retire? I'm not. I'm just having so much fun. <laughs> well, that's good because because you've been, so you started, so yeah, you could retire if you wanted to. Oh, several times over, but but. You know, I, I'm being paid to do something that I love, so I do not want to stop. Well, I don't blame you, because if you love what you do, that's what that's what this whole shebang is all about, is to yeah. take care of yourself and your family and to enjoy what you're doing. So tell us about your writing career. How did that begin? Well, it, it paralleled my Air Force career. Um, when I was... Uh, it, it, it all it all really started, or at least my recognition of it, when I was a lieutenant colonel. I was a squadron commander in Hawaii, and uh, uh, I was responsible for 480 super talented young men and women. When I arrived on the island, the 324th Intelligence Squadron was the most losing unit in the state for uh, professional. Uh -oh. weren't able to compose winning award nominations and because of that it was impacting their careers so so I took three days off I developed my writing methodology taught them how to write and we in scant time transformed it from the most losing unit into the unit to beat that's where I recognized that changed my life because I realized that powerful writing changes lives. It opens doors to opportunity that otherwise would be shut. 
I didn't realize that until I uh, experienced the 324th Intelligence Squadron. But when, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, well, first of all, how'd you get the gig of being a commander in Hawaii, for heaven's sakes? That sounds oh, like a good, good gig. Well, being selected as a commander anywhere is a huge honor. It's a huge responsibility because there are there are legal um, responsibilities that come with that. The unified unified code of justice, UCM of military justice. So, so just being selected as a commander was amazing, and and you do that by by outstanding job performance and demonstrated leadership qualities up till that point. So. I was just very fortunate in that. And Hawaii, oh yeah, that, that was just icing on the cake. <laughs> now, what's it, is it Pearl Harbor that you were based at? Or what, was there, is there another base on Hawaii? There's an intelligence unit there. So I was, I lived up on the north, the northern shore, the north shore, and then, uh, and then commuted to the, the location. Oh, very, very nice. Because that, that is, so now is that on Oahu? It was. Yeah, beautiful island, beautiful island. You know, I was a bus driver for a, a number of years, and, and being a bus driver in Hawaii is a little bit different because you keep taking a right turn. You didn't take left turns very much. Oh, that, that's, that's true, and it was always through pineapple fields or something. <laughs> exactly. So so you you turned your, your outfit from a lousy riding team to a good riding team, and you discovered that that, that can be a skill. First of all, I, I got to tell you, and I'm you know it's been a while since I've been in school, but I don't think they do a really good job of creative writing, of, of getting, what's your experience around the education of writing? Uh, it, it has deteriorated, I think, for about the last 15 years. Um, and, and the reason I say that is if you look at the writing skills, people of, of my age are, are usually good at it because our education, I think, was more robust when we were coming through school than those who, who um, succeeded us. Um, what I teach now is not taught in schools anywhere. You know, I teach how to write with, with precision and focus and, and conciseness as just as not being taught. Um, even even students coming out of grad school, even students that have gotten the, the A pluses and AP classes, they graduate writing fat, not skinny. It's verbose. It's not concise and precise. And so when they hit the job market, they're they're like roadkill. Uh, employers are 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 eagerly searching for people who can write with precision because time matters. People are busy, and if you're trying to market your product. You know, tick, 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 how much time do you have to catch the audience's attention and then retain it? You have to you have to get the message across like like so. Yes, you do. And the same thing works in whether you're writing copy or you're writing a book or or a magazine or we're going to talk about in a little bit that uh, you do. Uh, um, you've got a couple of ebooks that we're going to talk about, and those are really, really important to write concisely and and uh, um, correctly because it, it's it's like even in my world um, when I was a bus driver we had um, accident reports and incident reports that we needed to write and those needed to be very concise because mm -hmm. if they got too wordy you could end up getting yourself into trouble because of the number of words you use and the number and what they actually mean um, so talk about that a little bit 
Well, what that that's what I teach people to do. If if you know, people ask me, how do I summarize the book and my writing methodology? If if you will um, imagine, and and your your listeners imagine uh, a white rectangle, maybe five inches across, one inch deep, a white rectangle. The the message behind that is that. Um, a successful author is the person who best leverages time and space. So tick, tick, I'm busy. You know, get my attention and get off, get off the stage. And the space, that white rectangle is, you are very often space constrained, like you just mentioned, where, where um, on a government form, there's often areas that are actually demarcated on the form where you have this much space to make your case. Or, or describe your grant project in 250 words, or give me the byline of your article in 170 spaces. So the author who best leverages time and space wins. So in that little white rectangle, put in big black letters the word opportunity. So that space is your opportunity to convey your message as potently as possible in as few words as possible. And that's what I teach people how to do. How do you do that? How do you, do, because there's a, there's a little bit of creativity that goes into it and understanding the mm -hmm. English language and the, and the meaning of words and, and all of that. How do, how do you get people to understand all that? Okay, and, and to, to answer your question, I'm going to describe the book just a little bit. Please so, do. All right, so the book is broken into four parts. The first part, um, the first part talks to strategizing your message. That's the first thing you have to do is to strategize your message. And I've got several, several strategies on how to do that. One of which, for example, is uh, I call it don't bury the golden nugget. You, you identify what's the, the main message you want to impart and you put that at the top and then you follow it with background information and ancillary information. So if the reader gets interrupted or if you only have two minutes out of maybe an hour to convey your point, what's the most important point to make, you put that at the top. So there are several strategies on, on how it is that you craft the message itself. The second part of the book talks about word sculpting. So now that you have your draft, you, you want to hone it. You want to get rid of the, the useless words, the redundancies, the words that hog space. And I've got examples of that I can share with you. Um, but between strategizing the message like an inverted triangle, the strategizing the message is a top part. And the bottom part of the triangle is where you go sentence by sentence and you word sculpt it. You get rid of all of that, that bureaucratic blather, and then you end up with that hard-hitting message. That's how you make every word count and every second of the reader's time play to your advantage. Every job I've ever had that is of value and of consequence, you have to put together a resume. Yep. And a lot of people will put together a resume that'll have dates and times and, and stuff, but they really don't get to the heart of the matter, which is why you need to hire me. Well, it, it's the impact. So let me, let me talk resumes for just a second then. Um, the, the, the first thing about resumes is, is the verbs. So going back to my word sculpting, word sculpting num uh, tool number five is uh, uh, verbs are your friends, rely on them. 
So imagine a hard boiled egg, okay? Got it. All right, now make that hard boiled egg six foot tall. Big hard boiled egg and focus on the yolk. The yolk is the hard part of the verb. The white stuff is everything that we use to, uh, to suffocate verbs with nowadays. So for example, uh, place an emphasis on is the same thing as emphasize. Provide protection is protect. To be successful is to succeed. To pose a threat is to threaten. So you see, if you peel away all of those excess words, all of the white in that hard boiled egg and you focus on what's the real verb, that's how it's one way that you can make the writing more uh, concise, more crisp and save all the space that you are wasting on that white surrounding area. You know, I was just thinking while we've been talking, in addition to like resumes and things in the job that you've had for basically 45 years, if you're not writing things concisely and with the purpose that you intend for that, you can get folks into all kinds of trouble if you can't write well, can't you? Well, exactly. And, and to, re, to re, uh, respond to one of your earlier questions about, about writing and my career, as a first lieutenant, which is basically a baby officer, my job was to give daily briefings to the director of the National Security Agency. Wow. Okay, so, all right, as a first lieutenant. So this is a very junior person briefing an extremely senior individual and truly every single word counted. You had to be very precise in what you were communicating and how you communicated it. Um, so I learned from the earliest days, from my earliest days to write that way. How long did it take you? Or what kind of a schooling did they give you so that you could stand confidently in front of somebody that you see on CNN all the time or, or, or MSNBC or Fox News that's, that is somebody that doesn't have a lot of time, doesn't want to deal with a lot of nonsense, uh, how did you have the confidence to be able to stand up in front of that guy? I don't know. I just did it. Ah. Well, you did it. You apparently you did a fine job because I know that that would scare the hell out of me, of uh, being in front of somebody that is that powerful. Well, oh, that, that's that's not to say I wasn't nervous, okay? <laughs> but but so so I don't so I don't lose um, a thought pattern here. Let's go back to resumes for just a second because we were okay. talking about we were talking about verbs. So, so I've pulled, I wanted to share with you one of the big uh, fallacies in resumes. Now, the, the verbs I'm going to read to you, I extracted from one resume. Okay, so pretend that you are the employer and you are, you are listening to this. What question is this going to prompt uh, for you? Ready? Yep. Okay. Provide, uh, let's see, primary liaison for, responsible for, responsible for, responsible for, contributor in, responsible for, responsible for, maintain, coordinates, utilizes best practices, contributor in, provide direct support to. Those were all the opening verbs sequentially from a particular resume. Now you are you are the employer reviewing this. What what does that elicit from you? What reaction? Um, that he's trying to sell me on the fact that he's responsible, um, and I would I, I would 
because you know, because I, I've, I've had that job where you have got uh, I've been in management and and I've got you know 20 30 40 resumes don't have a lot of time mm -hmm. uh, I know what I'm looking for but uh, um, so if it's, if it's too wordy or too long uh, I don't I I just kind of toss it aside okay so what what so so to your listeners if you have in your resumes responsible for just because you're responsible for something doesn't mean you actually did it okay all right so instead of using those passive verbs that say nothing think about that hard-boiled egg what did you do so go for action-oriented verbs like directed implemented um uh, partnered with um uh, initiated, set new benchmarks. All right. Those, those are the verbs that are going to get, uh, get the employer's attention. Now you were talking about detail and, and the, the, that's the second major flaw in resumes is they don't explain what's the, so what, what did you do? What happened as a result of? So, so I've got an example for you. Um, led a team of uh, subject matter analysts studying an aging corporate logistics system uh, the uh, provided recommendations to the CEO okay you got lead and it sounded rather substantive but the story it didn't tell there's so much story it didn't tell so so you want to know how many people were on the team uh, how long was the study how many recommendations and what happened as a result of, of what you presented to the CEO. So you fix that by saying, let a nine-person team in a five-week study um, of this aging logistics system made six recommendations to the CEO who accepted all of them, saved the company $850,000. See, that, that is a much more effective. That's the difference that impact and detail make for your writing. And, Question. And, oh, go ahead. Well, you know, if you, if you think about it, it's like an incomplete tennis swing or an incomplete golf swing. The the first part that I read to you, minus the details, you've 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 halfway, you've told half the story, but the important part you've left behind. You complete the swing by filling in those details. How do you advise somebody who is just starting out, just getting out of college, and uh, they're they're going after a their first job? They really don't have a, a great deal of experience to fall back on, or successes in the in the business industry to fall back on. How do you uh, how do you tell them to address their first resume? Um. I suggest that they they look at any uh, community activities that they had, any if they're if they're truly coming out of school. So the first resume, um, look at community activities, any volunteerism. Um, what did they uh, groups they participated in school, especially anything with leadership um, leadership tags, debate teams. I once helped a, a young man uh, do his first resume, and the the penultimate, I love that word, it means next to the last, the penultimate word on this two-page paper was, um, uh, what was it, a chairman, a leader, captain, captain of the high school soccer team. That was a throwaway bullet. I catapulted that to the very opening of the resume. Why? Because if you're the captain 
of the soccer team. One, that means you would have been recognized for leadership capabilities. Two, you've got communication skills with the team members. There's all sorts of goodness in that one bullet that he didn't recognize. So consider all of the activities that, that you've been in, in, in high school or college, um, what, what community um, agencies you've been involved with and harvest those experiences. When I was in management and I ran across a resume for somebody that was a captain of a football team or, or a soccer team, or they were the president of their, or vice president of the, uh, the student body association, I flagged those resumes because that individual had a certain quality that I might be looking for. Exactly. Uh, leadership and, 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 and the ability to, to get things done, um, and to take other people's, um, um, thoughts and 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 uh, emotions in 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 their formation of what they're doing so it's it's really important you're right it's it's huge another and, and people often don't think about this but but being a waiter or a waitress is also notable because you are on the front end of that that pointy spear you are the primary interface with the customers so you're the one that's going to have to deal with, did a dish go bad, uh, customer dissatisfaction. So there's a lot of leadership involved there, too. Um, so if you were a waiter or a waitress on that resume, explain at what restaurant, uh, if you can quantify the, the number of, of people that you served, how long you were there, um, any particular situation that occurred and how you handled it. So a lot of employers very greatly respect the skills that comes with being a good waiter or waitress. I will tell you, because that was a field that I was in, mm -hmm. uh, was, was in, in the restaurant industry. And I, I will tell you that a good waiter or a good waitress or a great bartender or somebody that could communicate with people effectively mm -hmm. became a great employee all the way around. Yep. It didn't matter what field we were talking about because you can train smart people to do different things. Uh, but what you can't do is get people to understand how another human being might perceive something. Yep. Uh, another another thought along these same lines is uh, is compliments. If you have earned any accolades, either from that waiter or waitressing job or anything else, is capture those and and if they're poignant enough, put those in the resume. You know, exactly. rec recognized for or received a letter from a happy client if, if that person um, called you out for a superb performance. So those are all golden nuggets that you can uh, that you can weave into fodder for a good resume. So as an, as an example, um, when I was a, a busboy at the Doubletree and it was brand new, I was the first employee of the month. Um, and so that is something that you would put at the top of your resume, isn't it? it? It is. It is. And remember, we're talking about detail. So um, let me talk a second about detail. Like I showed you in that one example about uh, nine person teams, six recommendations and so forth. When you're saying named employee of the month, finish that sentence because that's only half of that tennis swing. Employee of the month out of an X number of person organization. Oh, okay. I thought of that. Yep. So, so detail. What detail do is they they provide a, a mental yardstick.
for the audience that sets the context so the audience understands exactly what you're talking about. Because there's a big difference, employee of the month from 30 people or employee of the month from 400 people or employee of the month third consecutive time or employee of the month fourth time this year. So, so finish that tennis swing and make sure you provide all of the details. Well, very good. That that um, that tells me a lot. That that's 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 really good. So, um, let's talk about let's talk about your book that you recently wrote. Mm -hmm. um, hold on a second. I I bet you you can come up with a title faster than I can. Um, right to influence. Yes, indeed. Right to influence. What what got you started down that road of of creating that book? When. When I retired, well, let me let me back up a second. It's in my soul is is the short answer. You know, when when my father, who was also Air Force, commissioned me, he told me three things. He said, he said, uh, stay focused on the job. Don't get caught up in politics. Always take care of your people, and they will take care of you. And keep your sense of humor. So it's the last two that forced me to write the book. Over the course of the year, years, I've had so many people come back and say, Colonel Bass, if it weren't for, I wouldn't have. You know, after that three, the 324th experience, I, I published a little tiny handbook. This is still when I, when I was active duty. That book went everywhere. I mean, it went global to places I've never been. And I ended up teaching my one hour workshop for the next 15 years to thousands of people, wherever my assignments took me, my little one hour workshop followed. So what I learned is that what, what I have, it truly does change lives. So when I retired, um, you know, I, I putzed around with the idea of, of writing a book and I, I, I got so tired of, of running in circles. I said, okay, Carla, you either get serious and write this thing or you flush it out of your system. But I've had so many people, so many testimonials uh, saying if it hadn't been for, I wouldn't have, that I could not not write the book. I had to. It creates had a lot to. of passion in you, doesn't it? When you well, can... It does. It does. Because, because what one, what I have, there's no other book that goes into the detail that this does on how to, how to strategize and then hone a message. Um, and... And I have seen so often, whether it's competing for the bit, the contracts or the grants or the jobs or whatever it is that you're trying to persuade somebody else to do. Heck, even if you're writing a blog and you want people to continue writing, reading your message, and this applies to fiction too. Nobody likes reading verbose was-was, whether it's, whether it's something going to Congress or whether it's, it's a, a, a book for enjoyment every word has to count and so i had to write the book well from what i understand you've done a wonderful job doing it because it's doing very well isn't it well it's won eight national level awards so i i, I wrote the first edition in 2017 uh, and self-published also by the way so that was a that was an entirely different learning curve so i wrote that in 2017 and then i began teaching workshops for for government agencies, for corporations, for NGOs, a lot of work with local public libraries. And in the next two years, I developed so much new, so a large amount of new material 
for those workshops that I incorporated that into 70, 70 more pages and published the second edition of Right to Influence in 2017. So to, to finish off, I started talking about the book. So the first, the first part talks about here's how you strategize the message. The second is the word sculpting tools. The third part is applying this to daily products. So there's, there's a chapter on, on grants, on resumes, on, on presentations, on the essays for college applications, uh, several other chapters that apply this technique to, to real, life, uh, real life needs. And then the fourth part of the book, the fourth of four parts is 200 exercises with in the format of before, here's the horrible example, after, here's how we transformed it, and then analysis. So you can actually walk with me as, and you can see exactly what I did and how I did it to go from ugly, ugly writing to crisp, sharp, concise writing. Because in, in anything that you do, and even more so today than, than uh, in the past, because the number of podcasts that are out there, the number of blogs that are out there, the, the, the number of people that are trying to communicate uh, effectively is growing, and there's very little training about how to do it. You yeah. know, you yep. know where you don't. So that's that's my niche. It just happens. I this is a gift. It, it's a gift, and and I'm trying to share it with as many people as possible because it changes lives. Yeah, really, it really can. Because if mm -hmm. you can write well, there can be the difference of being the guy whose resume is at the top of the pile versus being at the bottom of the pile. Mm -hmm. It can be. It can mean if you are a nonprofit and you're going for a grant. Yep. I know you have an e-book, e uh, a free e-book on your website, which, by the way, what's your website now? Yeah, it's it's uh, write, W-R-I-T-E, to, T-O, influence.net, write to influence.net. So those three free e-books, the, the first one talks about um, here's how you write, uh, write to win, a standout resume, write to win, a performance review, right to win a grant submission. So again, I've taken the strategies and word sculpting tools specific to each one of those products. And I, I did that because COVID has hurt so many people that those, those three things I thought were the greatest needs now. So they're on my page, righttoinfluence.net. I also, I also produce a twice monthly newsletter short and concise that also has writing tips. So if anybody would like to receive that, it's uh, email me at Carla at write to influence.net. Um, I value my reader's time. And so each one of these, these email, are, I emphasize they, they are, they're, I put a lot of work in these things. They're practical advice on writing skills and, and, and they're, they're focused. How do you have the time? You're working a full-time job for the U.S. government, and you've got a uh, seminar that's out there that you you can do, and you're writing a book. When, when do you sleep? I don't. <laughs> I don't. But at, at this point, I, I need to give it. I need to doff my cap to my husband. He's very patient and very understanding. Um, and, and, and very supportive. He, he understands that, that this is a passion. It's just something that I have to do. And, uh, and, and I couldn't do it without him. So 
I don't sleep and I have an understanding husband. Well, I'll tell you, the, the cool thing about what you're doing is you're following your passion, which is a big thing around here because it's important. that. And by the way, if you're following your passion, you tend to do it better anyway. Yeah. And it's again, it's not work. Oprah calls this thing a heart song. So I've been blessed with two heart songs. The first was the Air Force. And I decided in seventh grade in seventh grade is when I chose to go Air Force intelligence in particular. So that was my first heart song. And then as, as I, I completely, you know, this was serendipitous, maybe not, but from the, the, the job with briefing the, the director of national security agency from the earliest days of my career, powerful writing was just the other half of the coin. So that was my second heart song is, is powerful writing. How did you even know what the air force did, especially air force oh. intelligence did when you were in seventh grade? That's, oh, that's, that's, that's why I joined it. So I'm going to date myself a little bit. When I was in seventh grade, uh, the Vietnam War was ongoing. My right. father was then a, an Air Force colonel. He was a targeting officer in the Pentagon. So, so my mother kept wagging her finger at me. She said, Carla, don't ask your father any questions about what he does because he can't tell you. I mean, over and over, and I finally decided, well, shoot, if I can't ask questions, I'll just friggin' join Air Force Intelligence myself. <laughs> and, and, and that's what I did. It was, it was a combination of patriotism, because we were, we were a very patriotic family, and curiosity. So from seventh grade, that was my focus. And when you joined, had the war ended at that time? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you and I apparently are in the same rough age group because uh, in the, um, when I had the opportunity after high school, which ended in 75, that I had the opportunity to maybe go into the Marines or something like that. But the, the, the war had just ended and uh, the military was not in the highest esteem in the general population at that moment. Um, they, even, they even discontinued the G.I. Joe doll for a period of time, if you remember that. Yep, I do. I do. Well, it was a very different Air Force when I joined it. So I, I, I swore in at uh, 1977. I, my first assignment was in Germany in 1978. But the, the atmosphere, my remembering that I have been passionate about this since seventh grade. So now I'm a second lieutenant. My first day in the job meeting my first boss the first time. He said, Carla, we did not want a second lieutenant. We fought having a second lieutenant. And the personnel system said, if we didn't take you, we wouldn't get anybody. That was my welcome to the Air Force. And, and his boss, the colonel, and these were both well-meaning, decent people. The colonel said, "Carla, why don't you just go home and have a family?" <laughs> All right. So, so that was the environment. So I learned. I learned right off the bat. Uh, thinking back to my father's first piece of advice was, "Know your job and don't get caught up in politics." I had to become very good at what I did. I forgot that I was a female. I was just an Air Force officer who happened to be a woman. And, and I will say that for the 30 years, um, the Air Force, it was a level playing field. You were promoted according to your skills and your capability. I can deal with a fair but tough um, field. 
And, and, and so it was wonderful. You know, you were rewarded according to your skills and capabilities. And I, I could deal with that. So you went to, did you go to ROTC? Um, I did. Yeah, that's, yeah. yep. that's how you got your second lieutenant coming right out of and uh, coming right out of basic, right? Out of ROTC, yeah. Yeah, and and uh, in those days, that was the <laughs> that was the mindset. By the way, what your what your colonel said to you? Why don't you go home and have kids? Uh, that could have gotten fired today. That's what I'm saying. It's a completely different world. Completely different world. You know, everything has changed. There and, were not very many women uh, when I was around there. So, so you know, to, to be able to have made the rank of full colonel in those days, I think was was fairly significant. Oh, I think it's. I think that you're downplaying the significance of of oh. how important that is. How many colonels were in the Air Force when you were a colonel? Oh, I have no idea. I just know there weren't very many women. I mean, that's what that's what I meant to say. Oh. How many women were no. colonels? Not very many. I mean, for my entire my entire thirty years, I it was for me it was normal to go to a conference and say four hundred men and maybe ten women. That was just normal, um, right. and and that's that's why I, I came to think of myself appropriately so as an Air Force officer who happened to be women. I knew I knew a few others who were women who happened to be Air Force officers, and that was putting the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable, okay? <laughs> well, and, and you've got to be very, in, in, in those days, and, and even today, they still talk about that there are, there are um, uh, issues between the sexes in the military today, which is, is normal because it's in the general population as well. It's everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, and you've got you've got good people that, and you've got people that are still uh, dragging their knuckles on the ground. Well, uh, you know, I, I would do this again in a heartbeat if I could if I could say I do and start all over again. I, I would sign up for another thirty years now. Well, you strike me as a no nonsense kind of gal that uh, that somebody is not going to want to particularly mess with uh, because because you you know how to write and that's a that's a formidable weapon right there. Well, yeah, I mean, if you're trying to defend budgets from being cut, if you're trying to justify projects for for new funding, I mean, you have to be able. Well, I was a budget officer for a while too. So, so if you're trying to make a play for uh, for a new system or a new new program, when there are other programs competing for those same monies, you have to be able to explain what advantages does my program offer, what happens if it's not funded, and and what's the capability today, and how am I going to improve the capability? So the person who spins the most compelling story is going to get the money. Wow. That is, it's, you are you are really good at the English language, yeah, but I was, I was curious. Do you teach people how not to write above the intelligence of the person that they're writing to? Oh, this, yeah this this is this is funny. Um, uh, well, well, that goes to know your audience. So there's two thoughts that went screaming through here. First of all. You have to use the appropriate terminology for the appropriate appropriate audience. Here's an example from the 324th Intelligence Squadron. This was a resume bullet um, that I was I was supposed to sign. It said um, um, earned plus three slash minus three on the DLPT. 
That's all it said. Plus three, minus three on the DLPT. I had no idea what that meant. So I pulled the young lady in and I asked her, what, what did you do? What is this? Um, when you translated that into English, it means that she scored 95% on the reading and 95% on the listening defense language proficiency test in Chinese. Oh, All right. So, so the, the bit about writing with the appropriate language, if, if that, if that bullet were intended to go to the language professionals only, they would understand it. But that bullet was going in a performance evaluation. Performance evaluations and promotion boards are sat upon by logisticians, communicators, legal folks. It's cross-functional um, who, who, who make the determinations on who gets promoted or not. Nobody would have understood what that bullet meant. So an amazing accomplishment almost fell through the cracks because it was written in the wrong language for the audience. And she would have no idea why it got uh, uh, overlooked. She wouldn't, she wouldn't have known. She said she would not have known. So, so you have to know the audience, know the language it speaks. And to come back to your question, you don't want to talk above them if you're if you're talking. So, so how knowledgeable is the audience about what you're going to address? Are they PhD level? Speak to them at that level. Are they novices? You know, don't talk down to them, but but convey it in things in terms that they're going to understand. You have to target the, the right language to the right audience. You know, it, it's interesting. I, I've always thought of myself as, as having a broad vocabulary. And every time I do a, a vocabulary test, it says that I do okay. I'm not great, but I do okay. And uh, I was reading a novel or a short story from a guy um, who's a friend of mine. And uh, correct me, tell me if you think this advice I gave him was correct, because he used he used a term that I actually had to look up, and it's called deciduous. Um, um, I had no idea that deciduous trees meant trees that leaf, um, but but because I didn't get that. Uh, because I'd never heard that word before. Um, it, it diminished the value of the story to me because it was, it, I, am, I, I felt like I was missing something because I didn't understand what he was trying to say. I'm going to take a contrary, a contrary uh, point there. I, I enjoy um, a text that will occasionally, not all the time, but occasionally throw a word at me that I don't know because I'll write it down and go look it up. It, 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 it stretches me, and I appreciate that. Now, I don't want a paragraph that's got so many of those opportunities that I don't understand any of it, so I, I put it down because it was just too much. But, but the occasional challenge, I think, is a good thing. I, I, um, I resist when people tell me to write a document at the fifth grade level. When you're talking to adults, I, I, I won't do that. I will not write down to them. I will write, you know, at the appropriate level. But I like the occasional challenge. So so um, with the office I'm with now, occasionally, you know, and this is where I was thinking it was funny. I will try to slip in one of these more elevated words and see if I can get it through the review process. 
Um, and and because, because I'm, I'm tweaking the tail just a little bit, when I say elevated words, I'm talking sophisticated words that I'll try and, and spike in. And, and, uh, and, and, and they pretty much get edited out. But every now and then I get one through and I score that as a, I count that as a victory. Because <laughs> you're, play, you're playing a game with them. I uh, and and they know it. it. It's all done in good jest. Here, here's here's one of the words I have yet to succeed with. Desideratum, D E S I D E R A T U M. Desideratum. That's that's a fancy, very fancy word for requirement. So you know, a lot of in a lot of our writings, we're talking about the requirements for this, requirements for that. And so I was seeking a a synonym for the word requirement, and that's where I found desideratum. <laughs> <laughs> nobody had any idea what you were trying to say. No, that's why I say it's it's a joke. It's kind of an in off in in office game, and and not I'm not ever going to get that word in a document, but at least I got to mention it here. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly, and uh, so so even if you were a novelist in the in in your writing skills, you would you would not uh, you would you would put some of those words in there to to try and elevate somebody's game a little bit occasionally occasionally now let, let's talk fiction for just a second um you know you pointed out my time is is really really limited so the amount of time that i have to actually read a book is is i mean that's that's so rare but when i sit down and read a book i i want it to be worth my time so my my genre my favorite genre is spy novels. I, I enjoy that. Okay, surprise, surprise. The the author that I my go-to author uh, is Dean Kuntz and uh, Daniel Silva. They are the best at packing every single sentence. I mean, just brilliant what they do with words. Now you go to another author, uh, and I won't give any specifics of who, but. But I've based a, a um, one of my presentations, one of my web classes or in person, I call it Spin That Captivating Tale. And in that presentation, I, ex I give examples of here's how to do it from, from the opening lines to catch the reader's attention to examples of, oh, my God, these sentences are poetic. They are so power punched. But then I also have examples of, of other paragraphs that are so fat they are so verbose um, and then I show how you can how you can apply the word sculpting techniques and the strategies and transform them so that they are half the length and and carry twice the meaning so so right to influence applies to fiction also well, I figure it would because when you're writing to to influence you can do it in, in a number of ways but before before we go I have to ask you since you are a you like spy novels and stuff. How true are they? And uh, uh, are, are some of them actually fairly true to what actually happens out there? I would assume so. <laughs> oh, that was very, very <laughs> clever of, <laughs> of you because that, did, that denoted that you have no earthly idea, which we both know is not true. Uh, well, it's the, it's the old can't confirm, can't deny. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Do you find that carrying all of this knowledge and all of these secrets and all of these things that that 
So when you listen to CNN at night, if you have got a few minutes or or Fox News or whatever, you got and you're and they're they're saying something about intelligence or about something from uh, that's going on somewhere else that the intelligence would be aware of. And do you do you ever sit there and go, my oh my, when are they ever going to get this right? Oh, occasionally, occasionally. Now on the flip side of that, um, I live out here in Virginia, and uh, Senator War Warner, I think Senator Warner. And we don't talk politics, but I will say this individual knows what he's doing. So, you know, about what what he speaks to when he's addressing conventions or it's just it's refreshing to hear a politician occasionally get it right for understand what we're doing and and convey it appropriately as opposed to to twisting things. so I, I give I give kudos to him. I would imagine that in the writing that you do and in the writing that is um, generated by the um, uh, intelligence uh, operation, and I believe there are twenty six different agencies that, or something like that. that are, 17, 18, oh, 18, yeah. eight, 18? Oh, okay. Well, I, anyway, uh, there are lots of them. Uh, mm-hmm. I imagine the the volume that is generated by that number of people writing all this stuff down is huge. Well, yeah, it's just data in general is, is exploding because of new technology. Which, which is really good. Now the, the, uh, um, have you ever been, I know you probably can't tell me this either, but I'll ask anyway, have you ever done the daily brief? No. Now that is, that is for those of you that don't know what the daily brief is, the president gets a daily brief of of hot, hot, hot topics that they want him to be aware of on a daily basis. Am I correct in that? Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, and so the, the, those are some some like them differently. Uh, I know that um, uh, President Obama liked to read them, and he liked to have. Uh, um, a lot of a lot of dialogue and and a lot of and President Trump liked cartoons, but no, wait a minute, that's not right. Um, but anyway, I can't. You can't even smile at that. Uh, you're not even allowed to. So, uh, <laughs> I understand completely. By the way, we're talking with Carla uh, D. Bass. She's a uh, former colonel with, but you still carry your title, right? So when you're in 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 the Pentagon or around, are you still Colonel Bass? Uh, retired. Yep, Colonel Bass. Yep. Retired. I mean, oh. it's, it's, it's a title that you've earned. It's like a, a medical doctor. Just because you retire from the medical profession doesn't mean that the doctor, you know, gets separated from your name. Exactly. Exactly. So go to her website, which is www.righttoinfluence.net. And if you go to there, you can you can pick up their three ebooks that she's got that you can download for free. And one of them includes um, learning how to write grants, which, by the way, I've tried that. It is not easy to write a grant. It's very, very hard. And I think they do that intentionally. Well, well, they do. And there's a lot of competition. And it's even tougher now because of the economic circumstances. But ironically, um, I live in Fauquier County, which is just west or just east of Shenandoah here. Uh, Fauquier County received um, grant money under the CARES Act. And so they announced to all of the small businesses in Fauquier County, if your business has been damaged by COVID, 
you can submit yourself for a grant. Well, my business took a nosedive because of all of the, the workshops, the in-person presentations that I used to give stopped. So I submitted myself for a grant. The, the top amount one could receive was $7,500 and darned if I didn't get one. Well, good for you. Yep, yep. Because, you know, I talk to a lot of people that are in a lot of different fields, either the the uh, acting field or they're, they're in music or they're um, comedians, and they can't, they can't work. They, yep. they can't go you know, to do what they normally do, and, and Zoom calls and stuff like that are for a paid presentation is, is, has, has its limits. Oh, it, it does. It does. Um, you know, one other thought on, on, on grants, and this also a tip, this also applies to resumes. When, when you're submitting either the resume or the grant submission, you write it from the perspective of the reader. So when you're, when you're submitting a grant request, the question you answer, the number one question is, here's how my program will further your mission you're writing to the owner of the money the owner of the money they've got their mission so how is it that you can complement how can you help them accomplish their mission it's not about you it's about how you can benefit them that's that's the key and the same thing for a resume when you're writing a resume it's not all about me it's about here's how i can help you so you know that that story about the the hole in the dike and the little Dutch boy that that puts the finger in the hole. The the prospective employer, there's a hole in his dike. He needs something. He needs a capability. So tailor your resume to answer that question. Here's how I can help you, and then give those hard hitting verbs and the examples of problems that you've solved and, and, and things that you've accomplished. But it's all, it's, it's all about them. It's not about you and it's not about your program, it's about them. Let me ask you a question because I think this was a good strategy, but uh, um, let me ask you because this is what I did. Uh, because I was in the food service business, I wanted to go to work for a brokerage firm. This particular brokerage firm had just landed a new line of products, which were uh, pickles and uh, mayonnaise and, and stuff like that. They were a local brand um, in the Pacific Northwest. And so I went and interviewed with them, and we, that went very well. And and uh, I I hadn't my, didn't have my resume with me at the time. And so I took my resume. I went and bought a... Uh, bottle of mayonnaise from this particular company that they had were now going to be repping. And, mm -hmm. I, and I emptied out the mayonnaise and cleaned it out and, and put my folded my resume and yep. put it into the mayonnaise jar and then and dropped it at the at the front desk of the uh, of the uh, brokerage firm. Was that a good strategy? I love it. I love it. Do we do we have do we have uh, another minute for a parallel story? We do. Okay. All right. So I have a list of 10 reasons why a boss needs a staff who can write well. I'm, I'm not going to, I'm going to cut right down to number 10. Number 10 is to work the occasional miracle. And here's the story. Um, when I was the group commander at, uh, at, at NSA, I had 2,800 people working for me. Wow. When, yep. Well, when I arrived on station, I arrived in, in July, the Air Force birthday ball is in September. I arrived it, uh, there, was, there wasn't time to change any of the plans for that year. 
So that birthday ball, out of all those people, we had 240 people come to this birthday ball, and that's counting spouses. So that means I had 120 people out of all of those folks come to this Air Force birthday ball, and that stunk. So as soon as the gavel went down, I said, next year is different. Next year, we're going to have a waiting list. Next year, I'm going to have this, this facility maxed out because there is no esprit de corps within the Air Force. I had to fix that for the Air Force folks at NSA. To do that, I needed one hell of a guest speaker. So who do I want? I want the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Now, for your, for your listening audience, that means I'm a little tiny colonel at the bottom of this triangle. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is the pinnacle. This guy is like God. So from my reaching down all the way to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, that was a reach. I, I went to um, General Hayden, was then the director of NSA. I went to him first and said, Mother, may I, sir, may I please invite uh, General Shelton to come to be the guest speaker? Okay, that was important. He said yes. So to come back to your mayonnaise jar, I, I word sculpted one short letter that basically said, I want to instill a spree de corps in my Air Force people, but I need you to do it. And then I wrapped that, and with the de details of the event, I wrapped that up in a piece of camouflage netting. And then, and then my second year old or second grade daughter had given me a, a stick with a little American flag that she'd scotch taped to the stick. I crammed that in the netting and that was then handed to General Shelton. That was the invitation. And you know what? He came. I had 600 people, which is the, the most that the, the Marriott Dining of the Banquet Hall could accommodate, 600 people, and I had my waiting list. That next birthday ball was one for the books. So I like your mayonnaise jar story. Thinking out of the box, demonstrating creativity sets you apart from the crowd, and that's what you strive to do in all of these things, whether it's the resume or the performance review or, or competing for all this stuff, you want to put yourself ahead of the crowd. And, and that's what you and I both did there. Well, I, I appreciate that. I really do. I have enjoyed our conversation today. It's been great fun. Thank you. Me too. Fun. Thank you so much. We're talking, we've been talking with uh, Colonel uh, Carla D. Bass. She's retired from the USAF. My son has yet to retire. He's going to be there for another well, 15, 20 years or so. And, uh, um, but I really appreciate having you on the show. And by the way, writing skills are second to none. And if you want to get ahead um, and you want to convey what you really are trying to say, if you can't write it down, you can't say it well. And so it's really, it's really great that you can, that you're doing that. And, uh, and you're helping, you're helping a lot of people and, and you've, you've got, got a lot of validation around that, haven't you? Oh, definitely. Definitely. So go pick up the book. It is www.write to influence. That's it. <laughs> Write to influence.net. Write to influence.net. There's a couple of free offerings there. Uh, give, give, write to Carla a note and tell her that you heard her on, on uh, my independence report and that you are real happy that uh, she was here. And get the book so that you can write your, write your way into a better job because it's possible, isn't it? Oh, yeah. 
Because there are people that have are full of golden nuggets that they don't even know that they have, yep. and uh, because they can't get them out in a in a way that makes that that really makes sense for somebody. So, um, as we always do, uh, Carla, if um, give you a couple of moments to say anything you want to our audience about anything at all. What would you? How would you? What would you like to leave uh, the, our audience with today? Um, the newsletter, if I, I, I thrill in helping people. So if you would like the newsletter, email Carla at right to influence.net. And it would be my pleasure to, uh, to correspond with you. Well, that would, that would be awesome. So again, give us that again, Carla, C A R L A at right to influence.net. And go get the book. Go to www.writeinfluence.net, and uh, the book will be right there. You can also get it on Amazon. You can get it anywhere. Exactly. Oh, and write me a review. <laughs> if, yeah. if you please, just a one-sentence review. You have to walk in an author's shoes to understand how valuable those things are. <laughs> oh, I, I, yeah. Then they're... They're very valuable, but uh, you are valuable, and I thank you for for. Before you go, though, I got to ask you, what was the most people you ever had under your command? It was NSA two thousand eight hundred. And I can't. So that's a national national uh, um, NSA National uh, Security Agency. And there are that numbers of people that are working in our government to keep us safe every day. That should well, make you. That was just the Air Force contingent. <laughs> how many? How many security? Or how many? Uh, um, would you guess how many folks in, are in our government working on our behalf for our security in total? Is it hundreds of thousands? I I don't know. I I, I don't know. And there's, you a, there's a lot. There's a lot. And you wouldn't tell me anyway because you're not allowed to. I know. There's a lot. <laughs> Carla, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, it's been great fun. Go to her website, uh, get get her uh, newsletter, and uh, I it's well worth your time. And it might, actually, it might mean a whole lot more than time. It might have a lot to do with money, too, because mm -hmm. you can make more money if you can write well. That's that, I know, to be a fact, isn't it? It's true. So thank you so much again, Carla, and uh, we're going to close it. Stay right where you are, and I'll be right back. Hey, and thanks for listening to this episode all the way to the end. Hey, pretty cool. Hey, don't forget to follow us so you can receive regular updates and new posts. And remember, take care of each other because each other is all we've got. See you next time on My Independence Report.